Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Heather Hendershot about her new book, When the News Broke, Chicago 1968 and the Polarizing of America, which revisits TV coverage of the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago and compellingly argues that this convention was a pivotal moment in American history when the notion of a liberal biased media became mainstreamed and nationalized. Heather is a professor of film and media at MIT and currently a visiting professor at Northwestern University. Heather Hendershot, welcome to That Said. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So today we're going to discuss your fascinating new book, When the News Broke, Chicago 1968 and the Polarizing of America. But before we do, tell us something about yourself. How did you come to be where you are? Sure. Um, Well, I'm a media historian, and I focus in particular on political media. And for a long time, I focused really on right-wing conservative media. I wrote a book on Cold War right-wing broadcasting. I wrote a book on uh, William F. Buckley's um, public affairs show, Firing Line. And then with this new book, I switched to thinking more about the Democrats and liberal and left-wing politics and getting away from that exclusive, you know, more of a hard right and conservative focus in in media history. So, um, yeah, that's what I do. And you teach at MIT and Northwestern in media studies? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a a professor of film and media at MIT right now and a visiting professor in the School of Communication and the Medill School of Journalism at uh, Northwestern. Great. So you started to answer the question that I want to ask you, but flesh out a little bit, why particularly this book and why the Democratic National Convention of 68? Wow, so many reasons. It's complicated. You know, the book started to come together in 2016 and after the election of Donald Trump and out of the my own frustration and the growing complaints that he was waging against fake news, as he put it, right? His Anything that was against him or disagreed with him or was critical in any way, he said, was fake, was phony, and so on. So that was on my mind. And I was researching Lester Maddox, the um, famous segregationist governor of Georgia, and he had been at the Chicago Democratic Convention of 1968. So I was watching footage of him at the convention, and he had been running for president and then decided uh, in protest he was going to step down as a candidate. And so Walter Cronkite of CBS cuts to him giving a big press conference uh, saying he's not going to run anymore. He's leaving the convention. And it's a big symbolic move. And Maddox looks like he's giving a big speech to a ballroom. And then the camera pulls back and the room is virtually empty. There's like six journalists in the room. And then they cut back to Cronkite in the booth. And Cronkite says, uh, well, there's Governor Maddox um, saying he's no longer running for president, uh, you know, a, a a run that no one really took seriously except Governor Maddox himself. And he's being a little bit snarky. And I thought this is interesting. Cronkite, who is the master of objectivity and trustworthiness and fairness, is making a very sort of objective evaluation of what this right winger was up to. So it got me thinking about the history of journalistic neutrality or objectivity and how that worked over time and and framing issues like the fact that CBS chose to pull back the camera is what did the sort of reveal of what was really happening in that room. So it was an editorial decision. So that's sort of what got me down the road to thinking more about what happened at this convention in 68. And I uh, end up talking about Maddox in the book, but I got away from him as my, my key player in the research I was doing and broaden it out to this whole complicated story about these these four or five days in uh, in Chicago. So the thesis of the book, to the extent that there's a thesis, because there are a lot of points that you make, multiple interesting points, the, the principal thesis is that the 68 Democratic National Convention, this is the whole world is watching convention where there are struggles on the street between police and Vietnam War protesters, was a pivotal moment in American political and media history, which, to your view, was the point at which the notion of a liberal biased media became mainstreamed and nationalized. Yeah? Exactly. Before the convention, the idea that there was a liberal tilt to the mainstream media, newspapers and and television, was an idea fostered mostly, uh, it was regional so far as like 
the hardcore Southerner segregationists, right, believe this idea, um, or people of the so-called respectable right, like William F. Buckley, people, you know, it wasn't considered a mainstream idea. And most people, whether they identified as re Republican or Democratic, whatever, understood people like Cronkite or David Brinkley, um, Chet Huntley, as, you know, professional newsmen who sometimes made mistakes, but basically were striving for objectivity. That was part of their training as journalists and so on. And after the convention, those attitudes shifted. And it wasn't... It happened in large part because Nixon helped it to happen. He weaponized the idea of liberal media bias, and Spiro Agnew, his vice president, helped him to do that. So he sort of kept this notion alive, fostered it, planted it, it took root, and then it was something that was developed by the right over the years and sort of fostered. And so that was, it's part of the story of how we got from there to here, to the Trump and post-Trump moment of accusations of bias and fake news and so on, uh, really finds its beginning at that moment. Yeah, and we had a conversation with Julian Zelizer, the historian from Princeton, who wrote a book on Newt Gingrich called Burning Down the House, where Gingrich sort of following the Nixon Agnew liberal bias media thread takes it to its next level, uh, ultimately leading where you take us in the end of the book to 2016 and the current attack on media from liberal bias to fake. Yeah, exactly. Gingrich is a key player. And I mean, it's become a strategy. I mean, again, Nixon started it in many ways. But when you're accused of something or someone says, hey, did you do this thing wrong? Or did you say, try to overturn an election, some horrible thing? People say, well, the problem is, or Watergate, for example, that's a great example. Uh, Nixon was not coming out and saying, oh, you know, there was no break in. There was no conspiracy. There were, you know, he wasn't defending Watergate. He switched the lens, as it were, and said, the problem is not the Watergate break in. The problem is the media. Problem is media coverage. And so that's become a kind of strategy. You just flip the narrative whenever you can and say, oh, the problem isn't this accusation of corruption or wrongdoing. The problem is the way the media covers it. So the book traces the four days of the Democratic National Convention. And there are so many interesting threads, one of which is the growth of the Democratic Party from this segregationist dominated Southern Party to what it is today. And also the development of the broadcast networks from really was NBC and CBS then, right? ABC was just sort of an upstart. Is that, is that right? right? Yeah, they're a, they're um, sort of behind the other networks in terms of news coverage. They were only giving 90-minute summaries of the events of the convention that day instead of covering it uh, gavel to gavel is what they called it when they did the entire you know day of coverage. So ABC is a kind of bit player in the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got the days of the convention, the growth of the media, and then the part of the thesis, which is the development of this liberal bias media nationalization mainstreaming. So I'd like to walk through the book and walk through the four days of the convention, which formed sort of the middle part of the book. But before we do that, because not everybody remembers 1968, a lot of our listeners weren't born. Can you take us through as a historian what was going on in America in 1968? Because it was about as an important year in our modern history as exists. 1968 was an incredibly traumatic and difficult year for America. The year opens with, well, Vietnam is raging. The year opens with the Tet Offensive, where basically Americans have been told by the Johnson administration that we're sort of about to end the war in Vietnam. And then with the Tet Offensive, there's a realization that the government's been misleading us, that we're not about to end the war. The war is, we're not on the cusp of victory, right? Uh, so it's incredibly demoralizing. There are many urban uprisings in the course of that year. And of course, you know, there have been Watts in 1965. So that continues Detroit in 1967. Uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated in April, which led to many, many uprisings all over America, uh, including in Chicago, where um, people were killed, um, buildings were burned down. Uh, so, you know, that was the, the King assassination, of course, was a huge crisis. And then in June, uh, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. And 
he had, you know, been a strong contender to be nominated for the, on the Democratic ticket. And he had become the pro-peace candidate. And that was just devastating, of course, in general. And it was devastating for morale specifically at the convention as well and exacerbated all the tensions and problems that surfaced at the convention. So uh, you cannot overemphasize how traumatic and difficult things were in America in 68. And then in, you know, Chicago, specifically with the fallout from the King assassination, uh, you know, by the time the convention started, um, and this is a whole separate story, but Mayor Daley had turned his city into a kind of fortress, uh, a, a militarized fortress. Um, so that's where we're at sort of as a background for heading into the book. Yeah. And in addition to what you've just laid out, you've got Johnson announcing that he's not going to run for president mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. but I believe he secretly is hoping to be drafted. Sort of like 1960, he sort of thought that he might get drafted. He's um, hopeful, that- and daily the mayor of Chicago is kind of encouraging him. And if you listen to their phone conversations, because, of course, we think of Nixon as the big uh, guy making recordings, but LBJ also was recording all of his phone calls. And if you listen to those phone calls, Daly sort of egging him on, like, you're the man for the job. And Daly built, I'm not kidding you, a giant, or built, had commissioned a giant birthday cake for Johnson. And the idea was that he was going to fly into the convention on the second day for his birthday during the convention. Uh, Anita Bryant sang the national anthem to kick off day two, and then she's saying happy birthday to the president. <laughs> um, so they thought he was going to show up. But by then, there was so much tear gas and police brutality and, and action in the street that everyone said it's just not safe for you to come. The Secret Service was like, you cannot just fly in on a helicopter uh, and join the scene here or um, all hell will break loose even more than it already has. So it didn't happen. And yet he was still somehow hopeful and Daly was hopeful that he would be drafted. At the same time, Daly had been a booster for Bobby Kennedy um, and was sort of secretly anti-Vietnam. You know, he was not altogether on board with LBJ's uh, Vietnam plank. So he would have preferred Bobby Kennedy, I think. It's a great juxtaposition of Anita Bryant singing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, and Marilyn Monroe singing Happy Birthday, Mr. President. Yeah, I think that's an irony there. This wild kind of milk toast. You know, right. from Anita Bryant. <laughs> it's right. just crazy. And, uh, you know, the day before, of course, um, uh, Aretha Franklin had done the national anthem to, you know, start day one. And yeah. so even just looking at those two different openings, you know, if all you saw at the convention was the first 10 minutes with, you know, uh, uh, Aretha Franklin and the first 10 minutes with Anita Bryant, you would know a lot about the craziness of the convention and what they were trying to do and what the conflicts were, because obviously Aretha Franklin was chosen to speak to black uh, Democrats and show that this was an inclusive party. And then Anita Bryant, who had also sung at the Republican convention, is there to show, you know, to speak to more conservatives and and Southern Democrats, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You sort of thought they would have flipped it in a sense that Anita Bryant starts and then Aretha Franklin says, but this is where we're going. This is where we're going. This is where we're going, but they didn't do it. But also in 68, in addition to what we've been talking about, you've got Eugene McCarthy, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the Bernie Sanders, if you will, of his time, who most of the youth, my generation of that time were all McCarthy people. We, we ultimately went to Bobby Kennedy, um, Mm -hmm. but McCarthy was, the peace candidate. And as you said, you had people like Lester Maddox and also George Wallace running uh, Dixiecrats uh, for yeah. president. Yes. George Wallace is running. And then you've got these Alabama Democrats who won't, you know, take their loyalty oath at the convention. They won't actually say that we'll support whoever the candidate is. And they finally take a non disloyalty oath, I think is what CBS News calls it. Um, like the Harry Reasoner says that just saying like, well, we won't promise to support the candidate, but we promise not to support any other candidates, which was totally not true. Obviously, they supported Wallace, um, and you know he was going to be on the Alabama ticket. Yeah, yeah and they walk and out. Before and... they'd gone for Goldwater, like the Alabama Democrats, they weren't supporting their, you know, LBJ in '64. LBJ hadn't even been on the ticket. You couldn't vote for LBJ in Alabama in 1964 yeah. because it, he wasn't on the ticket. It was wild. Yeah, but it... But LBJ predicted 
this when he said when the civil rights bills of the mm-hmm. early 60s were passed, that that was the end of the Democratic Party in, in, the, in the South. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you kind of see the next, you know, the huge crisis in terms of race and, and disenfranchisement and so on with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 64. And then you see a continuation of that in certain ways in 68. Um, I, do you want me to tell a little about what happened with Mississippi in 64? Yeah, well, yes, we can get to that in a minute because it, it's a, a predicate for what we see in the convention. So why don't we hold it and we'll take it a little bit more linearly. Okay, um, sounds if good. It, if that's okay. So we've got all this stuff going on, Michigas, as my grandmother would say. We've got all this Michigas going on in the country, and the Democrats have to select a place to hold their convention, and they pick Chicago, if you will, of all, all places, probably the most segregated northern city, if not nationally segregated mm-hmm. city, uh, being run by an iron-fisted autocrat, really a boss machine mayor in, in Daly. So mm-hmm. tell us, before we get to the convention, why Chicago? I mean, why why would you, in this period of tumult, pick yeah. this place of all places? It seems so counterintuitive. And it helps to go back and realize, okay, they selected Chicago, you know, something like a year before, much earlier, right? And Chicago was in some ways a kind of model city. Um, that's a flawed evaluation. You're just pointing to the, the obvious segregation problems there, the racial strife. I mean, it was a very difficult city, but compared to New York. So where, you know, the city's uh, struggling financially, um, Mayor Lindsay can't stop, you know, garbage strikes. <laughs> there are teacher strikes. There are, at one point, there's even a brief grave digger strike in New York City. Um, it's, you know, it's seen as a city that is out of control. Chicago, by contrast, is financially much more secure um, and stable and controlled and seems better, you know, as far as big cities go. And you really need to have a convention in a big city with infrastructure to bring in thousands and thousands of people and reporters and so on. You're not just going to pick a really small town, right? So the big cities, it seems a year before the convention to be a strong choice. And there's also this political factor of, okay, the Republicans have chosen Miami. Now the news, uh, the reporters, but especially the TV news people, want to be in the same city because it's hugely expensive for them to set up all their resources there for one convention and then move everything to another city. It's costing them, you know, million something bucks. Right. Um, Of course, Daly's excited because he hates the media and he's kind of happy to screw them over by making them pay more money to move to his city. Right. But so they would rather be in Miami, but Miami has a Republican governor. And so one of the concerns of the democratic party is that, and the Democratic National Committee, is that if there's a crisis, uh, protesters, and they need the National Guard, the um, Republican governor might not come through at all or in time. You know, if you really needed the National Guard in the streets, he wouldn't deliver. He would defer. And so that made Chicago, again, before the, the King assassination and, and so on, and Bobby Kennedy's assassination, that means made Chicago seem like the stronger choice. Of course, what happened was Daly didn't even wait for there to be chaos before he called in the National Guard. He had them ready on the ground before the convention even started. He had 5,000 National Guardsmen there. He had 12,000 uh, cops out on tw- on 12-hour shifts. He had, there were 1,000 Secret Service and FBI agents there. And you contrast that, that's like maybe 18,000 security forces, and there's 10,000 protesters. What? <laughs> it's mm. It's, you know, two to one. Right, security yeah. versus the protesters. And, and we'll we'll get to the protesters in a minute, but in preparation for this, as you indicated, Daly sealed all the manholes, he mm-hmm. fenced mm-hmm. off areas, he denied permits, he wouldn't let people sleep in the park. Puts barbed wire all around the convention center. And so a standard exterior shot at any convention is the convention hall outside, and the first thing you see on TV is barbed wire. And there's, you know, you, you know, people are writing letters to the networks. Why are you showing barbed wire? And they're like, because that's what's there. I mean, it's pretty unbiased. We're just showing you that he has built this up like a fortress. Yeah. The thing so. that 
struck me, and maybe it was only a retrospective view that allows this, is that Dr. King, when he leaves the South to begin to desegregate the North, goes to Chicago to try to desegregate Chicago. And it is King's perhaps most colossal failure, Um, in large measure because of Daly. And for a party that was trying to move in a more civil rights sensitive direction, the picking of Chicago in the aftermath of the the King failure seems so myopic. I, yeah, I absolutely agree. It was a devastating uh, defeat for King and he didn't see that coming. You know, he got there and he just couldn't believe the rows and rows and rows of public housing, you know, miles and miles of these um, skyscrapers of public housing and the intense segregation and that daily the 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 bigotry and disenfranchisement were so overt in the South that you might not always win, but you could really show what you were fighting. And if the cameras came and watched, they would see confrontations and police dogs and so on. And in Chicago, Daly would say, oh, of course we want to desegregate. Uh, there's no segregation issue in Chicago, though. You know, it, we, we don't have that. What? <laughs> There's no race problem in Chicago. But, yeah, what can we do to help? And he would make pledges like, oh, we're definitely going to work with you and just not do anything. It was all rhetoric. And you just you couldn't get any traction against Daly. So you're absolutely right that in light of the, the King uh, story in Chicago, that does make the Democratic choice seem particularly myopic. So let's turn to day one of the convention and tell us about the convention in a sense. There are categories of actors at the convention with different points of view and an agenda that they're trying to accomplish. So as a foundational matter, what's sure. going on there? Sure. Basically I see yeah, as you put it, I see different players. You've got what I call the realists. Those are the establishment folks, the guys who are there to support LBJ, and therefore they're going to support the nomination of Humphrey. They're going to support LBJ's platform in Vietnam and not pressure Humphrey to change the platform in Vietnam and so on. And they just want to you know, get it done. And then you have what I call the idealists, people like Allard Lowenstein or Don Peterson from Wisconsin, Wisconsin, California, New Hampshire, more liberal or Cronkite of CBS calls them the anti-establishment forces sometimes, but they, they were some of the McCarthy people, right? They're the the McCarthy. McCarthy. Yeah. So they're supporting McCarthy as the nominee. And the thing is, they know McCarthy's not going to get the nomination. Some of them probably think, okay, maybe, you know, I mean, he did end up getting, you know, a substantial number of votes, but most of them realize, ah, oh, he's not going to get the nomination. The important thing here is to push his ideas and force Humphrey's hand so that when he's nominated, he will soften his stance on Vietnam and end the war. Um, and so what's important is not just the, the, the push to change Humphrey's mind, but also the media spectacle showing on TV, showing Americans and the Democratic Party leaders, you know, knowing this is on TV, that Humphrey doesn't have all the support he needs because of Vietnam and that there has to be a change and that these earnest pro-McCarthy forces can help things become, you know, different. So they're very idealistic about this. Um, And then you have what I call the outsiders who are basically people of color who are challenging what's happening on the floor, challenging the disenfranchisement of, of black delegates. And so, it's a whole separate story, but, you know, basically like Mississippi uh, challenging delegates get seated. So you have a lot of people of color in the Mississippi delegation, but over in Georgia and Alabama, forget it. And, you know, black folks back in Alabama and Georgia, you know, weren't allowed to to be selected as delegates for the convention. And so these are protesters trying to make a change on the convention floor, um, these sort of outsiders, and in particular, Julian Bond. And you're asking about day one. Julian Bond is, you know, the key uh, black political player, really, of day one at the convention. We'll get to him in a second. And then you have the last group is the street demonstrators. Yeah, The protesters, yeah. So you've got those, the realists, the idealists, the outsiders, and then out in the street, the protesters, who are really a big mixed bunch You've got 
people who are affiliated with SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. You've got the Yippies, you've got Abby Hoffman, you've got Jerry Rubin. You've got some people who are very politically organized and very active and some people who are much more hippy-dippy, if you will. They're just, you know, they're against the war, they're pro-love, they're pro-peace, but they're not super organized as voters. You've got Allen Ginsberg there, who's out in the park chanting OM and suggesting that the police would just strip off all their clothes naked and sit in a circle with him and chant OM, they could defuse all the violence. Okay, it's not like the strongest political strategizing, but he's trying. It may have worked, who knows? I know, right? It could have helped somebody. And then, you you know, you've got uh, Jean Genet is there, William S. Burroughs is there. Uh, you know, it's a wild crowd of protesters in the street. Norman Mailer's there writing a book, you know, Miami and the Siege of Chicago um, and reporting what he's seeing. So the protesters are a, a mix. And most of them, though, want to march to the convention hall. And they're denied permits to do so. And many of them, as you already noted, they wanted to sleep in the park and they were denied permits to sleep in the park. And this is very harsh policy about what time the park shuts down. And I, I might be misremembering now. I think it was 11 p.m. But on the first day, the park shuts down and the police just start lobbing tear gas into, you know, Lincoln Park because people don't leave the park. Where are they going to go? You know, they're kids who came in on buses. They don't have money for a hotel. The hotels are sold out anyway. And they're just being slammed with tear gas in the park. Yeah. So it was really tough. It was really yeah. tough. And it really kept up the whole convention week. Yeah. So you write that the first day of the convention was an exercise in wishful thinking for mm-hmm. both the Democratic Party and the network newsmen. The Democrat leadership wanted to, to portray the party as a force of progressive change the party of civil rights, the party that would mend the fissures of 1968. And they hoped the media would convey this picture. Didn't work out that well on day one, did it? No, no. Day one, they thought we're going to have Aretha Franklin do the national anthem. That's going to go great. They immediately got lots of letters of protests that, you know, who didn't appreciate her soulful rendition of the song. They thought they would have some speeches, some procedural stuff, end early, and then start the convention for real the next day. And instead, they get swept up in this battle over Georgia delegates and Julian Bond versus Lester Maddox. Yeah. Um, and so, for hours. So you said earlier, uh, you mentioned Mississippi uh, resurfaces as it did with uh, Fannie Lou Hamer in Alabama, and then leading to Julian Bond and his Georgia loyal national Democrats. So. This was critical in day one and really set the stage for what the Democratic Party was going to become. So let's talk about it. Let's start with Fannie Lou and and Mississippi and Alabama and then Georgia, Lester Maddox and Julian Bond. Sure. Well, in 1964, Fannie Lou Hamer and others from Mississippi show up at the Democratic National Convention and want to be seated. The Mississippi is the hardest state with the fewest number of registered black voters, right? The voter suppression, I mean, voter suppression is all over, but it's, it's really, really bad in Mississippi, even worse than Alabama and Georgia. And so they come to protest at the convention in Atlantic City in 64, and they want their alternate delegation seated, and that doesn't happen. But they get a lot of media attention. And famously, Fannie Lou Hamer, who's very passionate speaker, a very good speaker who just really resonated well on television. She's giving a speech, not during the convention, but before one of the, I think it was a credentials committee meeting and all the cameras are there and LBJ sees it on TV. And the story is that he immediately calls the networks and says, I'm having a press conference now. And at that point in time, it's hard to imagine today, (laughs) but like all the TV would just cut to the president. If he said, I need, I need TV now. Whatever was on would be cut off. So he cuts off Fannie Lou Hamer and has to come up with something to say because he didn't really have any big breaking news. So he just sort of bluffs his way through that and she doesn't get the coverage and he thinks he sort of won. But they're filming it, right? They're still filming Fannie Lou Hamer and they just show the footage later and it gets recycled quite a bit, right? And shown over and over again. It becomes part of the historical record. So, you know, Mississippi is not seated, but they're promised we're going to do much better in 68. Okay. Thank you for, you know, opening our eyes to this. We're going to do better in 68. That was the pledge made in 64. 
1968 comes along and Mississippi challengers show up again and Fannie Lou Hamer is there again and, and her associates and they actually, the party players keep their word. They're like, okay. And they seat the challengers from Mississippi thinking, well, okay, we did it. Well, then there's challengers from Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Alabama. I mean, a huge number of challenging delegations and virtually all of those challengers lose completely do not get seated. And the only person who sort of partially wins is Julian Bond, right? Who has a delegation from Georgia and his group is seated with the Lester Maddox governor of Georgia handpicked delegates, which was their system. It was legal for the governor to handpick the delegates, no voting. So the challengers led by Bond are seated with the Georgia delegates and each person gets half a vote. That's the compromise. The full success would be that the Georgia delegates, the regular delegates were ejected and Bond's contingents, you know, replaced them. So this was a compromise solution. And a lot of those Georgia delegates who had been brought by Lester Max just walked out. They wouldn't take it. And, um, yeah, it just really laid bare the crisis around racial issues in the Democratic Party at that time. They're still in this transitional period where the Southern segregationist Democrats are leaving for the Republican Party, which is willing to support their segregationist stance. And so, to understand, to understand when we say delegates and alternative delegates, this was really a, a disenfranchisement issue, much like we're seeing now with gerrymandering and stuff. The absolutely, yeah. So talk a little bit about that because this notion of black disenfranchisement is going to come up um, mm-hmm. on day two and then on day three. So what is it about fundamentally? Oh. It gets really complicated and procedural. I mean, fundamentally, (laughs) it's about, you know, in the South in particular, but obviously, you know, Chicago has got a lot of segregation, too. It's about, you know, keeping Black people from voting in various ways. When you get down to the procedural nitty-gritty, at a convention, if delegates are selecting who's going to be nominated, which used to be the case. Today, you know, the selection is pretty much made ahead of time. And the convention is much more of a just a ceremonial thing. But in 68, they're still actually debating and voting and selecting who the nominee is going to be. And how the delegates were going to vote on the nominee, how they're selected varies from state to state. Everyone has their own process. So in some states, they actually have voting. Other states, the governor makes a selection like Georgia, right? So it's not Democratic per se. In Mississippi, they technically were allowed to vote for their own delegates. But what they would do is not share where the voting place was, or they would lie. They would say it was one place and then tell the white voters to go to a different place. And the black voters would show up to, say, a schoolhouse that was locked at night, you know. So it was really devious to prevent the vote from happening. And that's why you get all these delegates fights on on the floor because these people show up and say hey look you denied me the right to participate pre-convention and so you know what here we are and we want to be seated because we represent you know a substantial portion of the voting population that was exactly exactly and i just want to interject in texas you have black voters and also latino voters and I think when we think back to this moment, we often just think of it as like a black-white struggle. But you also have a ton of disenfranchised Latino voters from Texas who are protesting. And they just lose completely, you know, in Texas. Yeah, there's just, yeah, no chance. And, and so the Democrats are struggling with this. They compromise. Mm-hmm. Julian Bond and Lester Maddox each get uh, half a vote. And then Maddox uh, walks out and mm-hmm, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But how were the networks Cover. I mean, this is an important issue that's going to become even more important. How were the networks covering it? Was this important to them, or they were just looking for who's going to win the the horse race? It's at a this mix, point? yeah, it's a mixed bag. You know, on the first day, they really do a pretty decent job covering Maddox versus Bond, and I think that a lot of that has to do with was it was just a great story from a narrative standpoint. You've got this sort of villain from central casting, you know, in Lester Maddox, <laughs> who looks, you know, he's a bad, he's a bad media actor. He's operates in bad faith and so on and so forth. And then you've got this young upstart 
who was, he was handsome. He'd actually even been like a model for RC Cola, like print ads <laughs> in, in Georgia. Um, he's very articulate. He's very smart and he looks good in a suit and tie. And, you know, he's coming in there with a challenge and it's such a good story. So they're telling the politics, but it also really makes for good TV. By day two, when they're supposed to do the Vietnam debate, they end up getting stuck in the Alabama challenge. Okay. The Alabama story is very, very procedurally complicated and there's a few challengers. It's a hard story to tell. And the networks feel like, well, we, we sort of covered Bond and Maddox yesterday. They switch gears, especially CBS. CBS gets into the procedural weeds about, uh, well, are they going to draft, um, Ted Kennedy? Right. Is there, because there was a movement among the, uh, the anti-establishment delegates on the floor, the people who supported McCarthy were also like, but we like McCarthy, but can we actually draft Ted Kennedy? Cause he could win. He could beat Humphrey. Right. And so CBS gets totally sidetracked into pursuing this Ted Kennedy story. And of course, if Kennedy had been drafted, boy, they would have, CBS would have really won the day, but he wasn't. <laughs> and so NBC, who had mostly ignored that story, ended up looking like the better, hmm. you know, newscasters on that day. It is a great story. You've got this Lester Maddox, an axe-handle-carrying nationalist, and Julian Bond, the former communications director for SNCC, who, you know, is going to go mm-hmm. on to battle mm-hmm. John Lewis for a congressional seat, which is another whole story. So this is playing out on day one. So on day two, you start in a sense with, and then Dan Rather is sucker punched by yeah. Daly's forces on the yeah. on the floor. So let's turn to we're in day two. We're still struggling a bit with enfranchisement issues, but yeah. there's this thing that happens. Dan Rather gets punched. It's day two. The networks are not covering Alabama as well as they should, for sure. The the protests in Alabama. And then what becomes one of the big stories of that day is Dan Rather absolutely being punched in the gut, losing his breath, falling to the floor, getting up, right? And Walter Cronkite loses his cool a little bit and says, looks like we got a bunch of thugs down there, Dan. And when he comes back later, he apologizes for that a little bit. He's like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I lost my cool there. I was just, you know, very concerned. It was, uh, it was hardly losing your cool compared to what you see today on cable news, right? It was very restrained, but he was always trying to be so objective. So he felt like he'd lost his cool a little bit there. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I think Heather, the exact quote from the book yeah. is, I think we've got a bunch of thugs here, Dan, if I may be permitted to say so. That, exactly. That's the, that's the, that's the statement. Be- Permitted to say so. Yeah. The thing, and this has become a mythological moment. Dan Rather was punched. This was an attack on freedom of the press. That is accurate. At the same time, though, if you reframe the story, he is punched in a kind of scrum with some Georgia delegates. And one of them is trying to walk out of the hall with like the standard, you know, the big sign for Georgia, because they're so angry about Lester Maddox. Uh, being defeated and Julian Bond winning. And they say some racist stuff about how Julian Bond wants every white man to marry a black woman or something like that, you know. And uh, the the reason things are accelerating and anger is flaring and there's a huge crowd of people and Dan Rather gets punched trying to report the story is because of this uh, racist reaction that's happening on the floor. So that's, I think, the true, that's a key part of this political story, not just, oh, this is a horrible attack on freedom of the press, which it also is. It's the combination of the story of Black empowerment, which mm-hmm. is just beginning here in mm-hmm. civil rights, and freedom of the press. They sort of coalesce, but the networks, it seems, are more singularly focused on the Dan Rather gets punched, and this is a freedom of the press issue. But it's Daly's forces who do the punching. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it's it's so tricky because, you know, on the floor, you've got a lot of people. You've got Secret Service. You've got uh, plainclothes policemen. You've got Andy Frayne is the name of this company, this private security company. You've got so many security forces, and a lot of them don't have name badges or anything. Purposely, so, right? But purposely. So, you know, a lot of the interviewing is like Dan Rather saying, and who are you, sir? And people refusing to give their names, stuff like that, right? So it's clearly one of Daly's forces has punched Dan Rather, but 
which one it's it's actually kind of hard to say because there's so many different security forces down there hmm. so but we're gonna have to keep in mind this very famous i think we've got a bunch of thugs here dan mm-hmm. i may be permitted to do so because that's going to play into the latter part of our conversation about the bias and mm-hmm. but really the bias notion this predicate of your book that this is when liberal bias was mainstreamed and nationalized starts in full force on day three mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. convention. Yeah. So what's going on outside the convention and what we know from those who lived through it was the battle of Michigan Avenue. What's yes. going on out there? So day three is there's been violence going on for a whole week. I mean, even before the convention started and the networks have been, kind of undercovering it. They don't want to show themselves as criticizing Mayor Daley or the Chicago police. They're trying to be very fair. And in being fair, they're undercovering violence in the street. And it's a whole separate story, but it was very hard for them to cover violence in the street because Daley did not resolve a telephone worker strike that would have enabled live coverage outside of the convention hall, which was standard at conventions. So they couldn't actually be out there doing live coverage anyway. So that's part of the censorship, the infrastructure censorship Daly's put in place. Um, but in any case, they're undercovering the, the violence in the street. And by day three, they realize this is the news story. We can't ignore this story. And so th- these accusations of liberal media bias are particularly crazy when you realize how undercovered the police brutality was until towards the end of day three, you know. Um, if they were so liberal biased, they really held back a long time, right? So by the end of day three, you've got the as the so-called Battle of Michigan Avenue, right? Where for 17 minutes, protesters in front of the Chicago Hilton Hotel are just mercilessly beaten by police and arrested, thrown into paddy wagons and dragged away. So back at the convention hall, they don't have these images live. They're getting um, reports, you know, the the newsmen kind of had their earpieces and they're like, okay, we're just getting a story that there's some kind of violence in front of the Chicago Hilton. We'll report report back as we find out more. So what has to happen is the stuff that's shot at the Chicago Hilton, the footage, has to be put on motorcycles, sent back to the convention center. If it's, you know, 16 millimeter film, it has to be developed. It has to be edited in some way. And they're doing pretty rough edits. But, you know, they need time to do this and then they can get it on the air. So it's late towards the end of the day when they actually interrupt some speeches at the convention hall and say, we've got footage now on Michigan Avenue. We're going to show you what happened like an hour or two ago. And you see the police beating the protesters and the anchor men are kind of in shock. And the first batch of footage um, is a little bit shorter and is shot from the top of news trucks. And so you get kind of a distant shot where you just see the expanse of the beating. A few hours later, CBS comes back, Cronkite, late in the day, and he has a longer segment shot by the local CBS affiliate with handheld cameras at street level. And you get a different sense of what it was like to be in the crowd. And you also see the extent to which people who were not protesters, who were just like on the sidewalk, coming home from dinner, whatever, were being beaten. And there's an interesting moment where a couple has just been out to dinner and the woman's sort of wearing pearls and the man has on a tie and they're kind of white, middle-aged establishment types. And they're in shock. They're terrified. And Cronkite says, you know, these are people of substance in the community who are disturbed by what they're seeing. And so you get a sense of his bias, not as a liberal guy, but just as a white middle-class guy and bringing those norms to what he does as a reporter and kind of recognizing, like, he couldn't necessarily identify with hippies or SDS kids, but he could identify with this couple, terrified, coming home from dinner. And so that's part of that flip point moment where he realizes that the objective story is the story of police brutality, that it's not a both sides kind of issue of the police perspective versus the protesters perspective, that what's happening objectively is this horrific instance of police brutality. And after that, CBS, I mean, they really win the day with this on day three. They they show um, some footage they take in interviewing people in McCarthy headquarters where people who were beaten in, in front of the Hilton were dragged inside for safety and bandaged in McCarthy's suite. 
and he's and they're interviewing CBS is interviewing people who are bleeding out from their head and stuff and explaining what happened. And then finally, Cronkite shows a woman in a two door sedan who is just this sort of I don't want to be too stereotypical, kind of a housewife looking type. You know, I don't know. They don't they don't give her name, whatever. She just seems like a very sort of average person. She's driving through Grant Park and she sees these kids being tear gassed. And she's like, get in my car. I'm going to take you away. <laughs> and the National Guard uh, points a, a um, grenade launcher at her head through her car window to stop her from just driving over a bridge to carry some kids away who've been tear gassed. Mm-hmm. And Cronkite just says, this footage speaks for itself. You know, yeah. the, the horror that we've seen today. And I think it's helpful to tell all the different stories of the footage, not just the Battle of Michigan Avenue, but all these other stories to get a sense of how extreme the violence was throughout the whole thing, but especially on this third day. And the Walker Report, the post-analysis of it, called it a police riot. That was their language, right? Yes. And the Walker Report calling it a police riot is so fascinating because if you read the archival material and interviews with people who worked on it, they kind of went into the people, there's a whole core of people with Walker at the head of them. They, they went into it assuming that the police had acted with goodwill and that there had not been police brutality. They went in with a kind of bias and everyone they interviewed, they would like triple fact check because they were like, oh, that can't be right. And after all this research, they were like, oh, we were wrong. It really was police brutality. It really was a police riot. So they spelled out, yeah, some violence from the protesters. Yeah, violence from police. But ultimately, the police had, as they put it at the time, quote, overreacted. Um, mm-hmm. And to the extent that it was a police riot. Yeah, and I want to turn in a minute to the aftermath of it. But I just want to put a, a period on the end of the sentence of what's going on. Because at the convention, we're still in day three. And this is where the Vietnam War plank is mm-hmm. being debated. So on the streets, you've got the anti-Vietnam War protesters being beaten. Mm-hmm. Inside the hall, you've got the anti-Vietnam War plank, that which they were trying to push Humphrey toward, which may have been outcome determinative of the 68 election that had Humphrey moved toward peace sooner. But so talk a little bit about what's going on there and the importance of the plank and how this plays out, I think, in the election of Richard Nixon. Yeah, it's really important. I mean, Humphrey didn't distance himself from Johnson's war platform on Vietnam until very near the end of the campaign and very close to the election. And many people feel if he had turned away from LBJ's platform much earlier, he could have won. And I think that's a pretty strong, you know, speculation. Like the the race was very close. It was, and it was, and, it was, and the polls were tightening. I remember each day yeah, watching, right. and yeah. they were tightening. Thought we always thought if the election were a week later, maybe yeah. only, maybe, you know, but so it go on. Exactly, it was so close. And I mean, the idealists, as I put them, you know, the the McCarthy people who are very anti-Vietnam and wanted a softer plank on Vietnam and wanted to shift from LBJ's policy, were so hopeful that Humphrey would change his policy at the convention, and he would not. And I think it's it's a mistake on Humphrey's part, but I also think some context there is probably the strong, strong pressure from LBJ in the background and wanting LBJ to support him and so on. And, you know, they did not have a good relationship. And I think there was just a lot of pressure on Humphrey not to make the change. But it could it could have made all the difference. And the debate on Vietnam was so was so passionate, you know, and people at the convention hall just wanted people to see it at home on TV. And the thing is, the day before, on day two, um, the party organizers, the DNC organizers wanted to start the debate around one thirty in the morning because they didn't want people at home to see it. And that's when, you know, all hell broke loose in the convention hall and they had to adjourn. So they do it the next day at the beginning. And it's not prime time, but it's not 1 a.m. You know, it's kind of in the middle. So more people see it. And so the anti-Vietnam folks, the anti-Vietnam delegates realize the importance of people seeing this at home and understanding that, you know, there's a crisis in the Democratic Party, but it could be resolved. All that the Democratic Party has to do is come around on Vietnam and move away from LBJ. And of course, that is not what happened. Right. Yeah. So it did help 
in so many ways that Chicago uh, convention helped Nixon win. And that's just one way. And so day four, he gets nominated. He sort of gives the speech of his life. Mm-hmm. Nobody hears it because it's in the wee hours of the morning. But you know, No, actually, uh, Humphrey does give his speech at the right time. Oh, he does. Thinking of is 1972 when McGovern is nominated. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. The 72 convention is... It uh, doesn't get all the historical, you know, place in the history books, but was pretty chaotic. And there, McGovern gives his address at something like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. or whatever, right? Nobody sees it. People do hear Humphrey's speech. And it's it's really, it's a very strong speech. <laughs> uh, but the damage has been done, you know, with what's going on in Michigan Avenue. And this is incredible. Like, they had a pro Humphrey like biographical film to show after the speech to kind of motivate delegates and they start showing the film and the delegates just start leaving and they just turn off the projector and stop showing the film and I've never seen the film like I can't find it it's just gone right conversely they had a Bobby Kennedy film that they showed earlier in the night that won an Academy Award (laughs) uh that you that you can still see and it shut down the convention for i can't even remember 20 30 minutes because people wouldn't stop singing and crying and applauding because they love bobby kennedy so much right Mm. so that was just a a wild wild day framed by the bobby kennedy film at the beginning and then the battle of michigan avenue in the middle and then this totally failed humphrey film that you know is shut off uh at the end so the convention ends and politics plays out, and we get Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew and yeah. Ronald Reagan and Newt Gingrich and mm-hmm. on and on. But this is where you get to the heart of this thesis, which is that the 68 convention was this key moment for the nationalization of the media bias point of view. And this largely comes from the way in which the CVS cameras covered the protesters, the vantage point of the cameras. And so talk about the vantage point of these cameras. We talked about it a little bit. And then sort of like the the letter writing that mm-hmm, comes mm-hmm. to Cronkite, which I, when I read it, I thought, oh, my God, I wouldn't have thought that in a million years. So talk Incredible. about that. Yeah, the, the perspective of the letter writers was that, what you didn't show was the provocation of police. If you'd shown protesters who hurled profanities at the police, who threw objects at them, at some points threw like bags of urine and feces at them, you know, like there was a lot going on, right? If you'd shown the provocation, Americans would have understood that the protesters deserved to be beaten and that this was fair. That was honestly what people, a lot of people were saying in letters. And about 11 to 1, right? 11 to 1 at CBS, the letters ran Mm -hmm. against them. And to their credit, CBS, like, talked about those letters on the premiere episode of 60 Minutes, which was shortly after the convention. They were like, let's talk about the letters we got about Chicago. They're trying to be so transparent about what happened, and they they understand that the reaction was negative. And the reaction was basically, okay, your camera was pointing right at what you saw on the streets and Michigan Avenue, but – if you had sort of looked at different things, if you had sort of, uh, you know, pan left or pan right, you would have shown more of the story and you could have told a better story. The problem was poor storytelling, poor reporting. And I like to contrast that to today when the argument is not, oh, you told the story wrong. The argument is you made it up completely. That kind of fake news narrative is very different from saying like, well, you just used the wrong footage. Okay. So it's like a is a whole perceptual shift of the world today in terms of that, you know, kind of, of criticism. But at this time, we have to remember that we have just three networks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and this sort of the broadcast era, as it's known, sort of thought of as sort of like the mo- most dignified era of, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. television news coverage. We all watched the same stuff. There was all sort of the same facts presented. Maybe the facts were presented by white male middle-class values, but we could agree on a set of Mm -hmm. of facts. This is the first time that people are now beginning to challenge, well, are we really getting Mm -hmm. uh, 
straight story, right? Yeah, and I think there there's a lot of different ways to explain that. I mean, look, Cronkite goes to Vietnam at right on the ed, tail end of the Tet Offensive, right, much earlier in the year, and says we're we've come to a stalemate in Vietnam, and that's my perception as a journalist, right? And yeah, people like William F. Buckley and other conservatives disagreed with that and thought he'd done a bad job. But the mass opinion was, yeah, Cronkite's right. And actually, public opinion against the war had already turned before Cronkite went to Vietnam. So the myth is that LBJ said, if I've, I've lost uh, Cronkite, I've lost America, something like that. Well, maybe, but <laughs> public opinion was already against the war before that happened. So there was no sense of like Cronkite messed everything up for Vietnam at that moment in January, February, March, right? But by August and September, suddenly the attitude is shift, uh, shifted. I think part of it is the Battle of Michigan Avenue was so horrific. And I think Americans have been, uh, and in particular, you know, white middle-class Americans have been watching these these um, protests in the streets, uprisings, arson, you know, Detroit, Watts, Chicago, Newark, et cetera. And, I think a lot of the so-called silent majority, Nixon silent majority, kind of, they were used to seeing people of color beaten in the streets. And when they saw these white kids who they saw as sort of filthy hippies and they weren't very sympathetic to them, but in a way it was like, wait, what? Like, we've really, we're really losing Everything, if it's gone this far, you know, I think there was a kind of, and this is speculative, right? I don't have hard empirical evidence to just prove that this is the one issue. But I do think that was part of it, is that in the after a year and really more than that of seeing street protests and seeing tear gas in the street and seeing police beating people and so on, somehow the 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 spectacle of white on white violence for some people was like over the top. And I say white and white violence because the the protesters at the convention, of course, there were some people of color there and Dick Gregory was there and and there were some Black Panthers, but it was very much a white-led protest. The, the Blacks of Chicago were like, this is a white issue, you know, like, and maybe after this convention, people will understand that Black people in Chicago deal with police brutality all the time. They'll experience police brutality themselves and maybe they'll have more empathy. That was Jesse Jackson's speculation before the convention. This is going to be some beating and people have empathy for, you know, what police brutality is. And that's not the empathy didn't pan out the way that people expected. And mm-hmm. surveys, even notwithstanding the Walker report saying it was a police riot, surveys showed that most white Americans who were the majority felt that police had either used an appropriate amount of violence in Chicago. Some of them felt they hadn't used enough violence. And of course, the attitudes among blacks who were surveyed were quite different, right? Who felt it, you know, a much smaller percentage of Americans who felt that um, the police had had used too much brutality and so on. Yeah. That was underreported, the black perspective. Right. And so what we see then in sort of summing up this part of our conversation is that the notion of a liberal biased media was sort of not part of the mainstream. You had Mm-hmm. extremist point mm-hmm. of views yeah. saying that, but mainstream people sort of accepted the Cronkite mm-hmm. Huntley Brinkley as you know, sort of mainstream middle class, moderate values. I mean, exactly. I think you probably called Cronkite a cautious hawk when it came mm-hmm. to the war in Vietnam. That, that was the politics of, of that period. Absolutely. And then yeah. you see this white on white, violence from a fixed camera point of view and people just sort of refused mm-hmm. to believe it. They just couldn't and, believe it. And, and so you know, therefore, sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say, you know, they saw that and they refused to believe it. And then also Mayor Daly told them over and over again, don't believe it. What you're seeing, you know, is a poor storytelling. This is not what happened. The police did a great job. And Nixon weirdly is do it you know nixon and daly are kind of saying a lot of the same things and daly is helping nixon win he doesn't mean to 
because he's a hardcore Democratic Party team player, but he has to defend Chicago and he has to defend his police. And he's like a dog with a bone. He won't let it go. And he keeps the story alive in the media for months after the convention. What the Democrats needed to do was not only distance themselves from LBJ's war plank, but they needed to distance themselves from that convention and, and just get it out of the way because it made them look bad. And Daly helps keep that story alive. He makes a film that is in support of the police. He's on the radio. He just won't let it go. And I think that that is another factor that sways public opinion along with, you know, Nixon. And then Nixon is using footage from the convention in his advertisements. So, uh, you know, the, the convention just does not wane in the public, you know, view, right? It's just front and center throughout the whole, throughout the whole election cycle. And so the conclusion you write is, in some sense, since this couldn't be true, mm-hmm. since white middle-class kids couldn't have turned into bad people and it was too horrible yeah. for them to sort of envision the world going in that direction, therefore, the media must have made it up. Yeah, yeah. And um, what's what's amazing is this notion of liberal media bias as a kind of rhetorical tool, the right has really stuck, even as, you know, looking back on Chicago, the narrative that's won in Chicago, you know, 50 years later, is, oh, of course this was police brutality, and the Walker Report was correct. And then you see footage of the Chicago Convention in documentary after documentary, and it's being used as a kind of synecdoche for the 60s, just like here's a picture of the 60s, what was happening, just to show the chaos of that moment. And it's also used to show here's the crisis of police brutality in Chicago. So the the true narrative, I think, won out over time. And yet this idea that our problems are not police brutality or racism, but actually media telling the wrong stories and being biased, like that really took root. And it took root on a personal level, too, right? Wasn't the criticism not completely that the media was biased, but that the individual personalities, the network anchors had yeah. this media bias. Yeah. And so it became yeah. normative to attack the teller of the story as yeah. having bias. See a shift in rhetoric in letters written to Walter Cronkite before the convention and after the convention. And not just immediately after, but over the months and over the years. So before the convention, someone will write and say, you know, I really think you got this story wrong. I think CBS, you know, needed to do a better job and you should have shown this point of view or that point of view. And after the convention and the years following, you're seeing more letters to Cronkite saying, what the hell is wrong with you, you left wing weirdo? You know, like personal kind of attacks that were just not, uh, you know, not part of the story before the convention. I mean, you always had a few kind of nut weirdo letters, you know, in the archive, but you, you do see a sort of shift in tone and things going much more personal, which of course, you know, resonates in particular when you look, read it now, if you've been watching cable news and you see all these shouting matches and stuff, that kind of personalization of the politics and the personalities of newscasters being under attack and so on. And these feuds between newscasters, stuff like that you kind of feel that shift starting to happen if you read those archival letters from, you know, late 60s into the early 70s. It becomes acceptable to, mm-hmm. to, to do that, which would never have been considered acceptable before the convention, which is, to your point, this is when it became mainstreamed and nationalized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, as we talked about before, it goes through Nixon to Gingrich to... Fox yep. News, which really essentially, and Trump, which actually is the metastasizing of what we see start in 68. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Heather, we're almost at the end of our time, but I want to ask you, what are the takeaways and what are the the solutions? Oh, boy. Um, you have an hour or two to answer that question. <laughs> right? It's a really hard one. Uh, Martha Minow, the uh, Harvard law professor has a wonderful book called Saving the News. And she has some, uh, you know, uh, really concrete advocacy kind of issues about like tax law and 
newspapers becoming 501c3s and all these kind of practical things. And so you can really get in the weeds with these like practical solutions that she offers that would improve the news landscape in certain ways and would help prevent the death of, of print journalism and the loss of local journalism. So I think um, I would refer your listeners to, to her book more broadly in, you know, just like a minute, <laughs> what would I advocate for? I think one important thing is to kind of shift our rhetorical frame when we're talking about the current crisis in America and not speak about Democrats versus Republicans and the crisis of polarization, but to really focus on the crisis of democracy and to think about newspapers and TV journalists and so on can be aggressively pro-democracy. Their bias because a lot of them are really trying not to be biased on network news or the Washington Post or the New York Times. Their idea is we just want to report what we see. Cable news is different, right? They're all about having a slant and a point of view. But you still have quite a few people who will want to be unbiased. But I think they should acknowledge our biases towards democracy. We're in favor of democracy and we're opposed to authoritarianism. And that's very different than saying we want you to vote for Democrats and not Republicans. We want you to to be pro democracy. So I think that that rhetorical frameship is very helpful. You know, that that the Washington Post's new tagline, you know, democracy dies in darkness. <laughs> very dramatic, even melodramatic, but I think I think it's a good one. You know, it points towards a newspaper that is saying like, yeah, we're in favor of democracy. That's our slant. We're still going to report as objectively as possible, but you know, that's our our perspective. So that's the um Shortest answer I can come up with for, you know, steps forward. It's a great answer. And I think that the book is a terrific read for everyone who wants to understand how we got to this point. And really, you do offer solutions about what can be done in more elaborately, because I've not given you enough time, about how we might take steps forward to preserve the democracy that was so broken from this point in time. Book is When the News Broke, Chicago, 1968, and the Polarizing of America. Heather Hendershot, thank you so much for joining me today on That Said. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast.